Hi there, welcome to Out of Office. My name is Johnny Caldor, and this is a podcast where I get to take a walk with interesting people in media and try and find out what makes them tick. This is actually the first episode, and it's a recording I made quite some time ago um, with Barry McElhenney, who is the CEO of the PPA, the Professional Publishers Association here in the UK. We recorded this, um, I think it was in the summer of 2019, and we took a walk around Clissold Park, which is uh, an area of London where Barry has lived for, for quite some time. And we walked around the park probably five or six times, and we talked about uh, Barry's early career in publishing, where he was the editor of Smash Hits, which was a hugely influential magazine in the 80s, and how he moved on to Empire Magazine, and more recently talking about his role at the BPA and his views on the future of publishing. Uh, and this is the first of a series which hopefully will uh, will go on for some time to come. Anyway, I'm going to hand over to Barry and I'll pop in again at the end of the walk. So why Clissold Park? So Clissold Park, because I, my wife and I moved into Stoke Newington um, 25 years ago, it must be. When you're in an area like this, the park is where it all happens, and particularly if you have young children. So there were those years, um, firstly, with bringing the kids in, and I guess then as the kids get older, we've got the dog, and we've got Roxy, our lovely, sadly, recently departed Staffy, 15 years ago. Uh So I just morphed from walking the children every day to walking the dog, probably had a week's break. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to think about how many times I must have walked through Clissold Park. Right. And then I spent a lot of my career at EMAP. And EMAP, it was, it was quite a Stoke Newington kind of... There were a lot of people from Stoke Newington who worked at EMAP. Oh, yeah. So Tom Maloney, who was the CEO, lived over there. Phil Thomas, right. who I worked with, who now runs Can Lions, lived. And we would all meet. I mean, occasionally we would have a meeting in the park. So some of the magazines, some of the finest magazines uh, would have been planned <laughs> literally at this point. Right, yeah. Well, there we go, we're in Media Central. It's sort of, I, but you know what? It wasn't Media Central when I moved in. So let's start, well, where do we start? That's a whistle-stop tour. Where do, we do, where do we start? Do we start at Smash Hits or do we start before that? Well, I, I moved to London in 1983. I was 23 or whatever. I was living in Belfast, working in a library, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'd been in the library for two years, so my, my career was going to be, you know, if I kept my nose clean, deputy librarian, potentially librarian. I was the world's least likely librarian. But what was good about it was I was able to read a huge amount, yeah. and I was able to think about what I actually really want to do, which is not sit in this library for the next 50 years. Well, what is the day of a librarian? How much is reading versus actually kind of helping people out and doing stuff? The doors would open at 9.30. I mean, I remember this, this is imprinted on my mind, of course. And you would spend between 9 and 9.30 tidying the shelves before the borrowers, as they were known, would come in. And like any job, of course, you're meant to be serving the borrowers, but you'd be infuriated when they actually did come in because they would disturb all of the tidying that you just spent half an hour doing. So my ideal day would have been for nobody to come in. <laughs> yeah, so I was in this library, and it, you know, essentially you'd be reading voraciously, primarily magazines as well as books. Uh-huh. All of which you had free access to. All of which I had free access to, all day to do it. 
an old day to think about, how on earth am I going to get out of here? Yeah. And I had a previous sort of dalliance with the music press in that when I was about 14 or 15, and I started reading the NME, and I started writing letters to the NME. Now, this is in Belfast in the early 70s when there's a lot of strange stuff going on. Yeah. And I think looking back, it was probably come some kind of an escape route. You know, I'm sitting in my bedroom at home, you know, literally shootings going on all around you. Mm -hmm. And I'm writing my letters, these slightly surreal letters to the NME, which they started printing. Um, and I would write BMAC Belfast was my kind of sign-off line. And, I mean, I'm 15 or 16, and they kind of jokingly, I think, in the pages, offer me a job. OK, be back, the job viewers, because I just kind of bombarding them with letters. <laughs> and, of course, when you're 15 or 16 in Belfast, you don't really take that sort of thing seriously. I don't know to this day whether there's anything to it. Right. And I kind of moved on. But recently, um, James Hyman, who runs the Hyman Archive, now, Hi Mag, the world's largest collection of magazines, they're digitising the whole thing. And in my role as chief executive of the PPA, I've been working a bit with James and sort of trying to help him with this. And I just I said to him, you don't have any old issues in the NME, do you, from the 70s? And he pinged me over one of my letters, and I just had this kind of Proustian rush, tears in my eyes, you know? Amazing. Took me straight back yes. to Mac Belfast. Now, of course, the letter, which I would have remembered as being the height of yes. width, was just this sort of terrible <laughs> sub-Monty Python type thing. But anyway, it was printed. And, and one day in about 1983, I saw an ad for a journalism course at the City, of, City University in London, in Islington. And I applied. And to my amazement, I was accepted. And I've never gone back, really, and it was 35 years ago, intending to come for a one-year course yeah. at City University. Came, fell in love with London, uh, started getting stuff published, as in live reviews in The Melody Maker, you know, Depeche Mode at the such-and-such, such, or Amazing. getting £6 per review. Also writing for Irish magazines. You start to sort of... I don't know, I saw my name in print, and I think you have to, I think anybody, anybody who wants to be a journalist, you have to get a buzz out of that. It sounds egotistical, but to this day, I still like saying it. I don't know, you know, well, it is very egotistical, but I remember saying it and thinking, wow, I want, this is what I want to do. Not just for that, but because of the kind of, you're 24 years old, you're single, you're living in Kilburn, you're out every night at the Marquee Club, you know, Sending reviews to magazines in Ireland, getting her name in the Melody Maker. Happy days. Yeah. And then, then so I said, all right. Did you work your way up? Not really, no. I was working on the Melody Maker. So the freelancing sort of morphed into a staff job about 84 when I finished the one-year journalism course. Mm -hmm. well, the music press back then was a um, very different beast. You know, the enemy would have been selling 200,000 copies a week. Melody Maker, 150, Sounds, 100, Record Mirror, you know, 75. Mm -hmm. Over here, smash hits in the pop market, selling half a million every fortnight. So there's a huge amount of um, outlets. Uh, and I guess it's a relatively small world. And I was at the poppier end of the Melody Maker, which is quite a, quite a kind of rock, quite serious, you know. 
publication in many ways. And I'd be off on tour with, you know, Five Star or somebody. And I don't know, the, the editor's job at Smash Hits became vacant. I was approached in great clandestine secrecy by two men who would go on to play a large part in my career. Tom Maloney, who lived over there, and David Hepworth. Oh, wow, yes. I was asked to come to David Hepworth's house on a Sunday evening for my interview. And I, I knew what David Hepworth looked like because David at this point had, had become a bit of a TV celebrity back then. He was the presenter of the Old Grey Whistle Test. Was he? Uh, okay, I didn't realise that. And he had just that. presented Live Aid. He was the anchor man at Live Aid. Uh, and can now be seen, of course. Someone plays him in the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Uh-huh. You know, these things just... You have no idea at the time. But, but I didn't know Tom Maloney. I knew I was being interviewed by Dave, who was the kind of creative director, if you like. Yeah. Tom, who was the chief executive. Anyway, Dave's sitting there. And there's this other guy sitting there. And I thought, that must be one of Dave's sons. It must be one of his grown-up kids. And he stands up and shakes hands and said, hello, I'm Tom Maloney. I thought... I'm going to join here if I can. This is fun. This <laughs> guy's joking. He's the chief executive of the whole thing. Oh, crap. OK. Um, wow. He's talking to me about he's just got off the tour with the jam. And... So the idea of coming to work for Dave Hepworth and this youngster, who seemed very exciting, you know, the same generation as me, just seemed like terrific fun, really. Um, and I was interviewed. Interviewed, you know in inverted commas, by Hepworth in his inimitable style. And I remember him saying, I still, I can still remember him saying to me in the interview, so if you only had eight pages, because Smash It would be about 100 pages each fortnight, what would you put in, what would you put out? Oh, oh Jesus Christ. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I've got no idea. <laughs> Furiously busking, you know, thinking, you've got to have the posters, you've got to have the song words. You've got you to have, you know, cover crossword only leaves you four pages and I think it was very it was indicative of the Hepworth slash EMAP attitude which was magazines magazines are actually more about what you leave out than what you put in and particularly now you know on the internet when everything's potentially in editing actually mm-hmm. is saying there's all this stuff and I'm only going to go do this this and this yeah I'm sure I got the answer wrong there is no right or wrong answer yes there is and I've just got it wrong <laughs> I remember going home to my girlfriend at the time and saying, well, that's that. I'll never get that chance again. And was that all in your head, though, do you think? I think probably a lot of it would have been in my head. A lack of self-confidence. Knowing me. (laughs) I tend to live in my head. So, yeah, I think also maybe some of it was, you know, I'm the kind of rocker from the Melody Maker. Yeah. And I don't really get Michael Jackson, and I'm not sure... If I'll be able to do this, and I don't know to this day, I suspect now knowing how these things work that I may not have been first choice. <laughs> but about four or five days later, Maloney rung me up and said, Come into the office, we'll do a final chat, you know, to arrange your package. Yeah. And I thought, Oh my God, and the editor smashed it. Um, and I remember to this day, the starting salary was £17,000. This would have been 1986 with a £1,000 bonus and the possibility of a company car, which, of course, in those days, a company car was all, all, you ever, all a young yeah. man wanted. That sounds pretty meaty to me. I'm sure my starting salary was nine grand about four years later or something. <laughs> well, by the time I left, we were selling a million copies okay, at 50p every two weeks. That's just the circulation. Yeah. That's just the news agents. 
you were then practically beating the odds out of the window, you know, because if you wanted to speak to anybody in Britain aged 12 to 20, you went into smash hits. Right. Well, you know, and the odds cost a fortune. The editor's on 17 grand, and I'm earning more than anybody. Add up all those copy sales stuff, because he minus yeah. that. Yeah. And I think to some extent, smash hits, I mean, I don't begrudge it at all, it gave me my break. The money made by that then paid for just 17, which then paid for more, which then paid for Q, which paid for Empire, which paid for FHM, and on and on and on it goes. And it's a fantastic example of how back then you built a magazine dynasty, because you know the, you would use the the profits of one to not to buy a nice big office with a flashy fountain, but to to do the research and hire the people to do the next magazine. So with Smash Hits, how, what sort of guidelines did you have around advertising to to kids? You had to be careful. You had to be careful with certain issues that have not gone away, unfortunately. So this would have been pre-internet. There was a fan club page, basically, where, of course, at a very innocent time, you would, you know, um, tears for fears fan, you know, wishes to meet, like-minded, you know, uh, ABC fan. And you'd have your address, your phone number. Now, of course, wow. in a, even in a pre-internet world, some of those people, rather than being a 15-year-old Depeche Mode fan, were a 52-year-old bloke wanting to meet a 14-year-old. You know, so there was a lot of vetting. Introducing a slightly serious note into this otherwise very pleasant, rambling talk. Yes. We had quite a close relationship with the police because of wow. stuff like that. Anywhere where a million teenagers are congregating is always going to be exploited by people without their better interest at heart, to put it mildly. But were you choosy about the brands that you'd stick up on the pages there? We had one big argument, I remember, which was the British Army. And obviously a large part of their target would have been 16 to 18-year-old guys, of which Smash Hits a lot more than people think, you know. I just thought, well, no, we shouldn't let, we shouldn't let that in Smash Hits. You know, we've got these impressionable kids, man. Is this a, was this also based on your personal experience? A little bit based, I suppose, on that. The political climate at the time, you know, was... Yeah. It was very different, you know, Red Wedge and the Redskins and Paul Weller. It was a very kind of left-wing time, and it just felt wrong to me in my naivety or whatever that that the army, you know, should that, pe- that they would be recruiting innocent pop fans who... Within six months, we'll be off shooting people. Some, some of them in Belfast, you know. But I suppose rightly or wrongly, and I suspect probably wrongly now, the attitude was, well, he's the editor and he's in charge, so the ad wasn't taken, you know. You're probably turning down, I don't know, a few thousand pounds anyway. Well, I suspect you replaced it with someone else, though, didn't you? We probably did, but, I mean, it, it was, I suppose... I don't think it would happen now, <laughs> put it like that. Yes. You'd have the army in the front page now, you know and a 12-page spread of branded content. Well, quite. Small type saying, paid for by British Army. It was all very kind of overt. But surely that's a good, that was a good thing, no? I mean, it was, it was, the editor should be able to have that, that control. It was brilliant that they could support you like that. I guess as you one gets older, you know, and I got more involved in the business side of it, I, I always just think, wow, it was amazing that they turned that down. Yeah. So what did you claim, readership over circulation? I think the ABC figure, the circulation would have been, let's say, a million. 
the NRS figure, the National Leadership Survey, would have been like three million. Yeah. You know, and they're not that many million teenagers at that yeah. point. <laughs> Hepworth writes about this quite a bit in some of his books. And, you know, he talks about how, even though it was only 35 years ago, it was it was quite a kind of monochrome society, you know, and Smashheads was this sort of oasis of colour, you know, so you had three TV stations. Just so ridiculous. There were three TV channels. Yeah. The TV stopped at, I don't know, half 11 at night. The test card would come on. Um, well, that was colourful, at least. So the fact that every two weeks, this incredible rush of colour with an insight into the glamorous world of Duran Duran, you know, mm-hmm. on a yacht in the Caribbean, was just so exciting. You know, the truth is, life was pretty young and boring back then. Um, you, know, it was, you know, it was minor strikes. It was, it was, a, it was a funny old time. Uh, and it was obviously just before, you know, the Big Bang and, you know, it was Thatcherism um, out there. But in Smash Hits, it was just this kind of giddy, oh, hey, you know, mad kind of fun world. I mean, I remember reading it, but I remember being embarrassed that I read it. You know, it wasn't. It, you couldn't really get away with reading it as a as a fifteen-year-old well, boy. If you were a cool fifteen-year-old boy, no. But if you were a girl, uh, you just you read it. It was. It was yeah. Uh, you then moved on to just seventeen, of course, which right. which in its own way was every bit as radical, because Smash Hits was very much a kind of radical response to the enemy and the melody maker. And just seventeen was a very different type of girls' magazine mm-hmm. to the you know tamer ones that have preceded it. Yeah. Actually, so on Smash Hits, when you printed song lyrics, are you paying publishing um, royalties yes, we for were. that? we were. We were paying uh, PRS, I think it would have been. Yeah. We had uh, an office member whose job, you know, they would, they would sit there pretty much all day, every day with a pair of headphones on, listening for every single word, every and... They couldn't just get that from the, from no, the labels? They would, well, they would double-check it, I guess. They would right. get it and then... Because if, if you got one and wrong or one uh-huh wrong, you would have thousands of letters of outrage complaint. <laughs> <laughs> complaint. Amazing. The offices were in Carnaby Street. Yeah, I mean, it's too good to be true. You know, we were opposite the enemy at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we used to hang out, wave, you know, wave our circulation fingers out, fingers out the window at them. There's now a plaque saying original home with smash hits. So you'd be going into Carnaby Street, 52 to 55 Carnaby Street. Most of the people in the magazine were the same age, so you're all in your early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, pop stars are quite literally in reception. You know, Lamal from Kajagugu's here in reception. Wants to complain about whatever. Um, <laughs> and Miranda Sawyer, Bun- uh, Bunny Sawyer, as I know her, who I hired many, many years ago on Smash Hits, who's gone on to have a fantastic career as an author and journalist. She, she spoke about this recently. I went to see her talking about her career. And she said she vividly remembered turning up in Smash Hits on the first day, you know, getting there at 9.30, your best bit of a tuck. There's nobody there, obviously, because nobody gets in until 10. And her thinking, when do the grown-ups come? You know, when do they arrive? And in reality, after a day or two, there are done. This is it. Yeah. This is actually it. Oh my God. And I, you know, I suppose maybe it's the same now. I think on some titles it can be. It's maybe the same at Google. You know, where you're on the campus and you're hacking and 
you know, it's five in the morning and you're all having pizzas. I don't know. But well, um, it was the same in Mission Control. Exciting. When they put a man on the moon, the average yeah. age of Mission Control was 26 years. And there's something about that, and I've always sort of stuck with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I know he can't say this now overtly because it's ageist or whatever, but I'd always have a team of young, ambitious, hungry, energetic people, possibly naive, possibly lacking a bit of noise. Augmented by one or two old hands. Yeah. But I'd much rather have that than people have been sat there doing the same thing for 20 odd years. I totally agree. Uh, I totally agree. That's our hiring policy, absolutely, is yeah. smart graduates and, you know, go from there. I've always hired, looking back on it, I would never have put it like this, but I heard this recently, I've hired always on attitude rather than experience. Obviously, you've got to have, if you're going to be a journalist, you've got to be able to spell and string two words together and have some grasp of the Queen's English. But past that, I don't think I've ever been that interested in qualifications. Or yeah. It's more, you know, your attitude, flexibility, can do, go the extra mile, all those slight cliches. But my job at the time was as much kind of travel agent as anything, because I'd be so busy with the production of the magazine, I never really got to leave the office. I don't have any... I don't have any particular anecdotes in this period of, oh, my time in L.A. I never, I never got to L.A. because I was too busy. Right. What I'd be doing is I'd be sending Chris Heath to Hawaii with New Order for a week, you know. Were you jealous of the lifestyle the journalists were having then? I, I, I remember thinking, this is, not, you know, this, is, this, is, this is not quite as much fun. Because <laughs> on Melody Maker, I was, I was them. Yeah. I, I, so Melody Maker, my memories are, you know, here I am in Berlin before the wall comes down with the Pogues at three in the morning, having the time of my life, you know. <laughs> uh, so actually it was very different, but but there were rewards, you know. Yeah. The 17,000 grew slowly. The company, I had a company car and I had a secretary. And, and as far as my parents were concerned, that's it, I'm done. He's made it. Yeah. I don't know what he does really for a living, but he's made it. I remember the first day I started at EMI Music yeah. and I walked into my new office, which was pink for some reason, and within 10 minutes, the office manager came in and he said, OK, what, what colour do you want the walls? What yeah. stereo do oh. you want? And what artwork do you want? That was it. It was the very first conversation I had. It was amazing. <laughs> You've arrived. Yeah. <laughs> and I was in IT, for God's sake. Yeah, it was not a glamorous no, role. It was, um, and I think there was a certain innocence. I mean, I... I was so grateful, you know, five years previously I'm sitting stamping your books, you know, in a library in Belfast, now I'm at the Brits with Neil Tennant, you know. Yeah, amazing. That I never really misbehaved, if you know what I mean, I sort of, never, you know, I always, I just worked hard and kind of treated it very much like a job, which it was, you know. The memories when you look back are very glamorous, but at the time, it's just, it's like any job. Mm. She wants a pay increase. He doesn't get on with him, you know. Yeah. He's been poached by the NMA, you know. Uh, all that, you know, the computers aren't working. If there were computers, I can't remember. Probably, it was probably just around the time of desktop publishing. Yeah. And in January 1989, Tom Maloney took me out for a drink, which is how you did it back then, particularly at EMAP, you know. Go for, let's go for a pint. Yeah. And EMAP had just launched Q magazine. This is about 86, 87, they'd launched Q. And Q had become this runaway success, monthly music magazine. Yeah. And he said, we're thinking of launching a film version of Q. Would you be interested? 
And I said, I don't know anything about films. I couldn't even say the word. <laughs> I don't know anything about films, Tom. And he said, in a very kind of evil way, he said, that's why you'd be perfect for it. So they wanted somebody to come and launch a film magazine who didn't really see themselves as a film buff. This is Empire. It's this in... became Empire magazine. Um, I mean, I'll give you an idea of how quick this was, you know. By the time I'd left EMAP, it would take two years to launch a magazine with focus groups. And this is January 89, I'm in a pub saying, I don't know anything about films. And the first issue launched in May, you know, right. four months later. And what was the runway they gave you to make a success? Basically, they had Q. So the simplest belief, really, was do a film version of Q and it needs to sell about 40,000 copies for it to kind of wash its face yeah. eventually. Yeah. And again, Hepworth's role in this was crucial. You know, he was probably looking back on it, the kind of strategist behind it, and I was the chief implementer. And he, he wrote a kind of manifesto, you know, for each magazine, and Empire's was, uh, I remember it finished, it said, sometimes films can be art, with a capital A, but they must always be fun, and it had a capital F. So if Empire didn't exist today, could you launch Empire? I think you would launch something that's a cross between Empire and Pilot, which Empire have just started doing every quarter, which is box sets and kind of glorious TV. Mm -hmm. It's a very lively part, isn't it? I like it, yeah. No, I think you would launch it more than ever, because I think it's the only magazine of all the magazines we're talking about that still exists, that I worked on. So Smash It is gone. Yeah. FHM's gone. Zoo, move on quickly, has gone. Yes. Ah, uh, Melody Maker's gone. Empire is thriving 30 years later. I think fundamentally because it's never really moved away from that core proposition, which is there are all these films out there and increasingly all these TV shows. We trust us and we will take you by the hand and guide you through it. Now, that doesn't seem that radical. But 30 years ago, that was, that was just extreme, you know, because you had... Time Out, film review and the sight and sound. And these things, you know, they were like reading the tablets handed down from on high, you know. Mm -hmm. I always remember in Time Out, again, it was sort of part of our manifesto. One of the Time Out's reviewers went to see a film and his review finished off difficult to dislike. And we, at the time, said, this is everything we're against, you yeah. know. Yeah. And you had these little markers, you know, so I was rung up by The Guardian or the Independent or somebody before the first issue. And I was asked for my favourite film. Well, I knew what the answer should be. The answer should, of course, be Citizen Kane. Or perhaps something by Tarkovsky. And I said, my favourite film is The Great Escape. Now, that is an equally untrue answer. It's not, actually. All right. But I knew... You're trying to make a point. Yeah, it's a red rag there. But I knew by saying that, it would tap into a certain audience. And a lot of these things are generational, you know. You know, Tarantino was an empire reader, you know? Famously said, film is my religion, empire is my church, you know? So you, you had this group of people, Danny Boyle, you know, the Ewan McGregor's, people who were a bit younger, in fact, than we were, reading this thing, who've gone on, of course, to have incredible careers and who therefore still have an affection. So you had something like the Empire Awards, they all turn up. 
Yeah. You know, and I know these are not people who would normally turn up because it's actually their favourite magazine. Um, so I think you've got that, and you've also got a very good editor at the minute with Terry White. I think like Liverpool Football Club, it's only had seven or eight managers, editors. I think that says something. It's a bit of a boot room. I passed on to Phil Thomas. Phil Thomas passed on to Mark Souls, pretty much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do writers for Empire consider themselves critics then, or, or journalists? In my day, it would have been uh, you were a journalist yeah. who was reviewing a film. Yeah. It's probably moved a bit more, and not, not, not wrongly, I think, towards criticism. Yeah. Just because you've 30 years' worth of knowledge. We, well, I had a group of people who were very good journalists, and I surrounded them with people like Angie Errico and Kim Newman, who were just film... Not film buffs doesn't do them justice, just world experts, you know. And they were there to sort of correct the obvious mistakes and also give a bit of history, you know. And say, actually, Casa, you know, Casablanca or whatever. Because I'd just be so excited about Reservoir Dogs or something. <laughs> That's the greatest film ever made, you know. And say, well, hold on a minute. Right, yeah. Um, okay, so Empire. Um, Empire, I did... Again, three years. I mean, three years used to be the norm. Just because after three years, maybe less so now, but you would, you know, I find I was getting a bit stale, not, maybe a bit bored, said everything I wanted to say. Um, and Empire was very, very cyclical. You know, you'd have, hey, 1991, new releases, you know, Oscars, Cannes, Autumn Schedule, uh-huh. Review of the Year, hey, 1992. Same again. Oh, by the time you get to Hay 1994, okay. yeah, you've probably had enough. The big change in magazine publishing, which I think people are still dealing with, was the disappearance of the sort of handmade craft of the period up until the 90s when desktop publishing came and, and obviously later on the move to, 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 to mobiles and to screens. You know, you can now sort of put a magazine together without ever really leaving the office, you know? Yeah. On Smash Edge, you would spend three days in every cycle sitting in a building in Clerkenwell, watching it being made in front of your very eyes, you know? And then being transported on trucks to somewhere in Wales, and then you had to go to Wales and drink 12 pints with a printer, uh, who would then show you the cover which you couldn't see, and you would pass it, this is why I bought you the 12 How many the printers were there for Smash Edge? Well, Smash Hits was printed, um, I seem to remember it was being printed in Carefilly. The old joke, how do you approach a Welsh cheese? Carefilly. <laughs> uh, but you would have it at entire. A printer is pretty much devoted to it. Right. So you had all this, you know, uh, almost sort of physical, physical side to it, mm. which I do think, you know, you lose something when that goes. Now, you can now do a magazine so, so fast you, know, you, can, you can do it sending PDFs off your phone. Where did um, EMAP follow, or how did it follow um, Murdoch and the whole kind of whopping thing? I'm well, guessing it would, would have been afterwards. I seem to remember, I think Smash Hits was done on primarily typewriters, but you would be starting to have word processors. Yeah. You probably buy these things on eBay now, quite small screens. You had like a sort of flat disc that you put in, two-sided. That would have been just starting. And Empire was used as a kind of guinea pig within EMAP <clears throat> to go to DTP, desktop publishing. Yeah. But you weren't typing on carbon, you were keying in 
and the words were coming up in front of you electronically on a screen. Yeah. At some point in the early 90s, the mid 90s, I remember a guy coming on an EMAP conference. He would go away to a very nice, beautifully appointed resort. The editor of Q, Mojo, FHM, publishers. You know, there could be 60 people at these things eventually. And a guy coming, one of the sort of, one of the stranger guys from IT or, you know, the computer bit, saying, there's this thing called the internet that's going to change everything. Mm-hmm. And I always remember the example he gave, which was, You'll be able, he said, you'll be, you will be able to go to see the Rolling Stones in Los Angeles and you'll be able to write it there and then, put it up into a cloud, and people in London will be able to read it the next morning. And we were like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> what? No. And of course, the brighter people there started to think, Christ, is this going to change everything? Mm-hmm. But in a good and a bad way, in a bad way, because our role as the gatekeeper, you know, would, would, would be diminished. So one of my first jobs at Empire was to go to the Oscars. So I went twice. The Academy, your actual Academy Awards, 1990 and 1991. You know, Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty and Kevin Costner, all the, the old greats. And the first time you would read about that in Empire magazine would be six weeks later. But that was okay because you hadn't seen it anywhere else. Yeah. Unless you stayed up all night and watched it, you weren't getting it on the website, you weren't seeing red carpet. And I was able to then tell you what the Oscars were like. Now again, that's less than 30 years ago. And I think something is lost in that, but obviously a huge amount is gained, you know, because you're able very quickly to tell people, as it's happening. So by the end of that decade, that was probably the biggest change. You had gone from no internet to internet. What about prior to that with the typesetters and the unions and so on? I mean, you know, it's had huge impacts in, in the news industry. What about It's slightly magazines? less so, I think, because of the slower pace. <clears throat> I remember um, The Mission, it might have been, Wayne Hussey's band, uh, doing a photo shoot with Smash Hits and me getting a phone call from the BBC because they were top of the pops from somebody in the union saying, you know, we're the only people allowed to plug in there. Whatever. You're going to have to pay or you can't do it. The sort of, the closed shops were coming to an end. Mm. And again, it's hard to to articulate what the, what that was. But, you know, it was, it was difficult. I suppose it goes back to that previous point about Smash It's being this giddy rush of colour. Britain was this slow, complicated, black and white, jobs worth oh, you can't do it like that, you've got to fill this form in. And of course, these things are never black and white only. That went, and the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, had a huge role to play in that. But there were huge social consequences of that. Mm. Not necessarily good, you know, I would say. But the country transformed into the, into, you had the big bang, you know, you had the uh, privatisation, the spate of privatisation. Britain in 1979 and Britain by 1990 were very different places. Britain by 2000 was even more different. And publishing a magazine, you know, I did have this sense, I remember, of this can't last, you know. And I suppose if you had to put a date on it, the golden era was probably sort of 1980 to 2010, 85 to 05, if you had to be harsh, just in terms of technology, you know, playing in your favour, economic factors, etc. 
And it's easy to think, oh, it all finished in 2000. It actually took some time. You know, Facebook was invented this century, you know, yeah. the mobiles. So it took time, and then suddenly it happened quite quickly. And I guess if you're doing any kind of magazine now, it's a very different beast. But I talked to Terry White about this, you know, she's an empire. And on the one hand, I can see how exhausting it is because you're, you're being expected to do so much more with, with pretty much the same level of resource. Mm. But on the other hand, I'm quite envious because the only time I ever got to communicate with the readers was 12 times a year. You had to wait a month. Please allow four weeks for delivery, you know. Um, you got letters back occasionally, but that was it. Whereas Terry, it's pretty much 24-7-365's website, social, podcast, 12 magazines. Um, it's just this sort of never-ending beast, you know. And I think I'm quite envious of that, of that whilst recognising that that's... I don't know what we did, looking back is the truth. I think we sat in the pub for a week talking about how well we'd done. <laughs> and then we had a week talking about what we're going to do next. And I think we did the magazine in 10 days. Yeah. Okay, so if you, you say Empire has a healthy future and so on, is that the exception right now? I have this analogy, which I often use, which is a, it's similar to football, I think, right? In that everything, about, everything around the game has changed. Oh, the money going into it, the, um, the methods of watching it, of consuming it, the way it operates, everything about it, yet fundamentally, it's two teams of 11 people, trying to, one's trying to score more goals than the other one. Mm -hmm. So everything about around magazines and the production of them and the dissemination of them and the consumption of them and the platforms, everything has changed since I was doing it at the front line. Fundamentally, Terry White is still trying to do the same thing I was trying to do, which is say, of all the crap that's out there, here are the ones that I advise you to spend your money on. And then here's an interview with the best person behind it. And here's a funny article about something that happened 25 years ago this week. And here, you know. So the fundamental kind of job of turning on your audience and delighting them and engaging them and entertaining them and making them think this is the best thing ever. That hasn't changed. How you do that, everything about that has changed. So, when you find a magazine that hits the moment, the week, Private Eye, you know, some of the magazines at the minute doing current affairs, when the stars align, you know, when their version of Rick Astley comes along, and you have the right people, you know, fundamentally, you're going to be okay and we, we obsess in our industry about how that is consumed because that's a part of it, you know. But what lies beneath that, the ability to say something unique to a targeted group of people <clears throat> and delight them and entertain them and make them come back for more, that's the same as it ever was. And I think you can still find examples where that has done really, really well, be it The New Yorker, The Week, Private Eye, Empire, uh, 442, you know, at the minute. James Brown's are changing it up. Isn't the difference now, though, that an individual can do that? They don't need a brand to sit within in order to do that. They can do, but, I mean, is it the same, really? I don't know. I mean, I, if you said to me, you know, here's... Um, I know a load about films, and here's, my, here's the films you should go and see. And then next to that, there's Empire magazine with 30 years of history and the worldview and the wit. I'll take Empire, thanks. There's no shortage of people telling you what to watch on TV. Mm. Radio Times sells over half a million copies every week. Now, there is no need for that to happen. No rational explanation for that. 
that woman over there can tell me that my wife's dress looks really nice. I think she's probably going to listen to Vogue. So there's still something in that. In fact, I would say there's more in that than ever. I think if you've got a big magazine brand that's number one in its field, with a really good team of people behind it, doing things in an inventive, clever way, <clears throat> you could argue life's never been better, you know? It's a really exciting time to be in it, you know, as long as you've got one of those positions of relative strength and differentiation. And I'd kill to be editing Empire now. Don't, don't tell Terry, you know. <laughs> I'd, God, I'd love it. But maybe, I just wonder if Empire is, is, a, is anomalous. No, I don't think it is. No. We, so we've been working with Men's Health for quite a while now, actually, and they've got one of their cover stars, Ross Edgley. He has about 360,000 Instagram followers. Yeah. Men's Health has about 170,000 followers. And you think, well, you know, there's a brand with an amazing history with, with deep knowledge and, and experience. And, and, and yet there's this man who is amazing, by the way. I mean, he's, the, he's a man machine. And he's built that audience in a few years because he swims around the British Isles and, and you know, does a triathlon with a 45-kilogram tree strapped to his back. But, it, but it's interesting, the relationship between the two, because on the one hand, he has a bigger following, but, you know, they've got the, the machinery behind them. So when you, when you bring the two together, I think that's when it gets quite interesting. It is, yeah, it is. It's but, almost like a record company and, well, a, and an artist, say, I mean, you know? They, I don't know if that's any... I know it's slightly different, but I don't know if it's radically different from Smash It sells a million copies and the Pet Shop Boys sold five million albums. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean that Smash It is, is, is not a big brand. Yeah. And it can do lots of different things, you know. I think the kind of numbers game, I mean, I think, you know, it's an element to it, isn't it? Oh, Facebook have got seven billion people, so what? You know what I mean? Looking at If what? Facebook had seven billion people, that would be really, really <laughs> worrying. That's everyone Two on the billion, planet. <laughs> whatever. I don't even know. My view on that, it might be a slightly different point, is... Magazines, we shouldn't really be competing or trying to compete any longer on scale. Yeah, yeah. Now, once upon a time, and we've just been talking about, oh, Smash It's one and two teenagers. Well, great, that was then. Mm -hmm. Let's say, okay, how many people are on Facebook? What, a billion, yeah? Something like that. At least, yeah, yeah. Well, Here they all are looking at a monkey that can skateboard for 20 seconds. Wow. You know, I, I'll watch that as well as anybody, but. <laughs> Do not tell me I'm engaged in anything there other than, than 20 seconds worth of moronic amusement, which I quite like, actually. Yeah. Over here, somebody sitting reading Vogue for three hours, lying in bed, you know. The two things are completely different. Yeah. Now, so what if there's only 200,000 of them? If I was a client or a brand, give me the 200,000 and actually I've got some interest in me within that conversation of my product, well, than something flashing up next to the monkey. Now, I know it's more sophisticated than that. Sure. But at some level, we've beaten ourselves up. Oh, because we're not as big as Facebook. Well, I think increasingly publishers are saying, well, fine. We, we never want, we never will be. And we can leave that kind of mass market nonsense to them and to the people who want to, you know, put up with all the lack of trust and... Um, lack of any genuine engagement that happens over there. Meanwhile, over here, with this magazine, people are actually choosing to pay considerable amounts of money yeah. 
to sit and voraciously consume this. And, you know, with all the greatest magazines, the advertising is part of the experience. Yeah. So, you know, we're not beat yet, as they say, in Belfast. So I, I was at INMA a couple of weeks ago in New York, the News Media Association, yeah. and the whole week everybody was talking about the switch to paid content. I mean, we've been talking about it for years, but it really did feel like, I mean, I don't think advertising was mentioned more than a few times, yeah. right? It was all about membership, it was all about subscriptions, and a huge amount of optimism around people are, are ready again well, to pay for content, right? Like, like they always used to, by the way. Yeah. So exactly. how, how was it at the festival? Was it a similar sort of narrative? There was certainly, I mean, the last two years at the PPA festival, there's definitely been the beginnings of not a move away from advertising, you know, it's not, as, it's not as dramatic as that, but people starting to plan for a world in which advertising would be a smaller part of the overall revenue mix. Yeah. And I think they're very sensible to do that. I think it sort of plays to our strengths. And I think it ties back into the point I've just been making, which is advertisers are seduced by the kind of scale and oh, we can get um, 110 million eyeballs in this. And, uh, mm -hmm. As I say, I don't really think that that is any longer the space in which most sensible magazine publishers wish to operate. We're starting to realise that, that, that the emotional connection a magazine has with its audience is different and it is unique. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're um, practical fish keeping, a good old EMAP brand, you probably, you've probably only ever sold 10,000 copies, but those 10,000 people are now buying the magazine, you know, literally the T-shirt, the two-day festival pass, the Practical Fishkeeping branded bait that's on the cover, the Practical Fishkeeping podcast, and who knows what else we haven't invented yet. Yeah. Nobody's going to put up a sign saying no advertising allowed here. <laughs> Back to the British Army, but... But I think inevitably, as you know, as advertisers gravitate more towards the behemoths of the digital world, those kind of specialist titles with really deep tentacles into their audience have got some other pretty exciting ways of yeah. of surviving and, in fact, prospering. You know. But is it those titles that actually end up on top well, five years down the line? Well, it's interesting, you know, because if you look back at EMAP, you know. EMAP always had two wings to it. You know, there was this sort of the London end, the Tossers end, as it was probably known by the Peterborough people, with some justification. And there was the Peterborough end, other sort of country cousins, as it would have been known to the London people. But here's a question. Do you, do you think it was a mistake to 10, 15 years ago just start giving all our content away for free? Yeah, I thought it was at the time, actually, and I still think it's a mistake. Yeah. But it's not too late, you know. And as I say, the fact that in a world where everything is regarded as free, the fact that 600,000 people a week walk into a news agency and say, here's my £4.20 for Radio Times, mm. is unbelievable. Would they pay that for Facebook or Twitter? Would you pay £30 a month for that, whatever? So, good luck to all. You know, there's room for all of us, but it's just this kind of binary notion that some people have that that's it, you know, magazines, they'll be finished by... 2032. I've been going to conferences for 20 years and people have been saying that. We're still here and finding exciting ways to innovate and turn people on. So It's also interesting how people still ascribe value to like a physical object, you know. It was the same in the music industry where, you know, the CD 
cost twelve ninety nine, and people couldn't understand that you know the fact that the plastic, the bit of plastic cost twenty five p. What was what was going on <laughs> know, there? It, it's, it's an incredibly kind of immersive experience. A magazine, you know. I mean, you know, I, I don't often say this publicly. I only read magazines in print. You know, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't read them. Um, I, I look at them, but I don't really immerse myself in them. So I would get, you know, my subscription to the New Yorker and the Economist, and I like. I'm in a hotel room or I'm travelling, I'll skip through the iPad or look at my phone, you know. But it's not like reading the magazine, it's a different experience. And I think that's emerging as well, you know, that the, these iterations don't have to be the same. Yeah. You know, so the New Yorker and The Economist, they're fantastic digital strategies, I think. But for me, it's not replacing me buying and reading the magazine. Sure. Do you know what I mean? And I find sometimes, interestingly, some of the more venerable ancient brands are the most innovative when it comes to, particularly the New Yorker, when it comes to its digital strategy and how it's just sort of luring you in. And that works really well because I still get the magazine and read it. I read it in print form. I play around with it and I'm seduced by it and read bits of it and nuggets digitally. And I think there's a there's a roadmap ahead. We haven't all worked it out yeah, yet. Yeah. I wish it was starting all over again. I wish it was, frankly, I wish it was 21. <laughs> Coming out of the library and going for my interview at whatever the 2020 equivalent is of Smash Hits 1986. Oh, I'm going to go and have lunch with Hannah Reese, unless you want to ask me any more questions. No, I think that was really good. Was that all right, Johnny? I really I appreciate it. it. Yeah, no, it's You make lovely. me think, which is great. Okay, so that was our chat. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. If you've got any feedback at all, please um, do get in touch and let me know. Uh, this is a, a very new thing, so I've got a lot to learn. Um, and if you are interested, uh, do subscribe to the podcast and like it. It's going to be, I would imagine, on the usual podcast uh, services. It's also going to be on our website uh, at pugpig.com. Um, and hopefully I will see you again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.